Revelation chapter 3. Last week we began the message with the question, have you ever been or have you ever seen or have you ever heard about a church that was just dead, completely lifeless? Now, this week the question that we consider from the beginning is, have you ever seen a church that was fully alive and, and fully faithful? A church that truly focused on Jesus Christ where Jesus was the center of its ministries, of its mission mindset, of all of its activities. I want you to realize that this is the church of, of Philadelphia. I'm sure you've heard by now, you already are aware that that word Philadelphia can be translated as brotherly love or one who loves his brother. The believers at the church in Philadelphia they truly loved Jesus. They truly loved one another, and they truly had a, a love and a compassion to take the message of Jesus Christ to all the world. And so the church in Philadelphia was alive and faithful. In fact, this is a, an example, a model for us to, to take note of and to try to follow. And so we're going to begin, as we always do, let's dissect this letter into its sections and so the first thing that we're going to see is the characteristic of the one that wrote this letter. And so we see that in verse number 7. Look at verse 7, chapter 3. It says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So a, a few characteristics that Jesus identifies about himself. First of all, it says that he's the Holy One. Now, holy means completely set apart. So, so uh, Jesus declaring that he is the Holy One is in fact equivalent for him to say that he is God, which, of course, he is. So, so Jesus is holy in his character. He's holy in his words. He's holy in his activities, in his actions. He's holy in his purpose. And so as the Holy One, Jesus is uniquely set apart from anything or anyone else. Nothing can, can be compared to our Lord. And so he's holy. And then not only that, it says the true one, which means Pretty obvious. I don't have to break this down too much for you. To be true means it's not fake. To be true means it's genuine. It's not a counterfeit. Uh, to be true means uh, he's the real deal. He's not uh, some type of imaginary being. So, so Jesus says that he's the holy one, the one that's completely set apart, and he's the true, real, authentic thing. It says in Isaiah chapter 45, verse number 5, the Lord declares, he says, I am the Lord. There is no other God. So there's none other. He and he alone is real, authentic, genuine. Everything else in comparison to him, all these other false gods are nothing but fake, counterfeit, imaginary beings. So it's worth noting, I think at least, that when the martyrs in, in heaven 
address the Lord, they address him as the holy and true one. I want to show you. Look at uh, Revelation chapter 6. Turn there. In Revelation chapter 6, beginning of verse number 9, it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who have been slain. So he, he sees the souls of the martyrs uh, who've been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had bore. Uh, then they cried out with a loud voice, O oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And so their declaration of, of the sovereign Lord being holy and true was rooted in the fact that because he is holy, then he has to judge sin. And because he is true, then he had to vindicate his people who had been slain. So, so not only is he holy, not only is he true, then Jesus also says that he has the key of David. Now, look it's again at verse number one. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David. So what is the key of David? I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 22. Come on, turn those pages. Isaiah chapter 22. The background of what's happening here is that Assyria has been invaded by, by Judah, just as Isaiah had warned. But the Jewish leaders, they were trusting in Egypt rather than trusting in God to deliver the nation. And so one of their treacherous leaders was a man by the name of Shebna. Shebna was known to use his political office for personal gain rather than for the good of the people and for the glory of God. Okay, so God removes Shebna from his office and puts in its place a faithful man by the name of Eliakim. And so this is the background and this is what uh, the Lord said through Isaiah in respect to Shebna and Eliakim. Look at Chapter 22, beginning of verse number 20. says, and, and then I will call my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, to replace you. This is addressing to Shebna. He says, I will dress him in your royal robes and will give him your title and your authority. And he will be a father to the people of Jerusalem and Judah. I will give him the key to the house of David the highest position in the royal court. When he opens doors, no one will be able to close them. When he closes doors, no one will be able to open them. But you understand that the key of David is a symbol of authority. With Isaiah chapter 22 as a background, we see that this servant was a personal assistant to the king. This, this servant was, was placed in control over all of the king's affairs. No one could gain access to the king. No one could, could uh, have a moment or discussion with the king unless they first went through that servant. And so this servant alone determined who entered into the presence of the king. Sound familiar? 
Eliakim is a picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ determines who has access to our Heavenly Father. Jesus Christ determines who's the one that has the ability to approach the, the, the glory of glories upon his throne. And so Jesus Christ has supreme authority. Not only does he hold the key of David, but if you look back in the background in Revelation chapter 1, verse number 18, he also holds the keys to death and Hades. So Jesus is setting the, the tone from the very beginning. Look, there is no one else like me. I am uniquely qualified to be able to say the things that I'm about to say. Not only am I qualified, I have the supreme authority to do what it is I'm about to do. Now the text continues. Go back to the letter. Revelation chapter 3. Notice the compliment that he gives to the church. Begins in verse number 8. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patience and endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Let me give you a few of the compliments that he gives in these verses. First of all, the first compliment that I see is that he compliments them for being a church of little power. That, that's not a negative statement that our Lord is making about this church. Uh, Jesus knows this church. And in knowing this church and observing this church, he says to them, I know that you're a church that has little power. Now, most likely the reference to having little power was due to the fact that I believe that this was the smallest of the churches to which Jesus sent a letter to. And, and that little power being representative by the fact that it was a small group of believers. But, but even so, he says they were little in number, most likely. And because they're little in number, they're also little in resources. Now imagine being a small church and reaching out to the lost consistently and faithfully and very enthusiastically witnessing and bearing witness to salvation and the hope of Jesus Christ. Imagine making such an evangelistic effort that Jesus is so impressed and he takes notice, so impressed that he commends the church for it. Not only does he commend them for it, for being a little church, but then he also guarantees that the door to evangelism will remain open for them and ain't nobody going to be able to close it on them. So Jesus takes note and he compliments them for their faithfulness and their dedication, even though they might have been small in number. Then he says that the church, he compliments them for, for keeping his word. For keeping his word. In other words, they were faithful to the word of God. They obeyed his word. They, they lived out his commandments. Very practically, this was a church that studied the word of God. That lived 
the Word of God and that shared the Word of God with believers and non-believers alike. That's the, that's the pattern that we should be following in our own lives. It's not enough just to study and to know the Word of God. Wisdom says that we take the truth and we apply it to our lives. So we got to know the Word, we got to study the Word, then we got to live the Word. And as we're knowing it, and as we're living it, then we seek to share the Word with any and everybody else. So this was the church that was commended for keeping the Word. It was a church that was commended for confessing Christ. Jesus said that they had not denied his name. Do you understand that to, to confess Christ means so much more than just to go out witnessing? Although that is an important part of confessing Christ. Individually, to confess Christ means that the focus and center of all that we are and all that we do are pointing people to Jesus Christ. That's what it means to to confess Him. Corporately or collectively as a church, to confess Christ means that the focus and the center of all of our activities, of all of our the things that we hope to do, the things that we plan to do, should be rooted in a desire to glorify God and to make His glory known. And then really, if we're doing something and it's not intentionally seeking to glorify God or to make His glory known, then we really ought to stop and ask ourselves, what are we doing in the first place? Because why are we doing it? Why are we wasting energy? Why are we wasting resources when we know that the, the intent of whatever it is that we're doing is not intentionally seeking to glorify Him or to make His glory known? This church was a church that was little in power. It was a church that kept His word. It was a church that confessed Christ even in the midst of great opposition and persecution. Make no mistake, those who are without Christ will often try to ridicule us, they'll try to reject us, to curse us, to attack us, to tempt us, to take advantage of us. Those that are without Christ will, will ultimately try to do anything that they can in an effort to try to get us to join in their allegiance and their rebellion against God. You need to know that. You need to understand that. And knowing and understanding, you need to be able to identify when that's happening so that you can resist it. So those don't fall prey to it. To confess Christ means that Jesus is the center of all that we do and and all that we hope to do. It, It means that we will stay true to Him even in the midst of great persecution. That we're not going to by the lie that comes from outside sources. We're not going to uh, compromise our faith. We're not going to water down the gospel in order to, to, to win an audience. We're going to stay true to the Word of God. We're going to know what His Word says. We're going to live it out, and we're going to share it with other people. Now, I want to take just a moment, a side moment. Maybe I shouldn't do it, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. I want to address... Uh, Chapter 3, verse number 10. Because I think a lot of times this verse gets misused. So I want you to look at it again. 
Here the promise is that this church is not going to go through a a time of trial or tribulation. The verse says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now this verse becomes quite challenging. This verse is is a verse that, that presents itself with the great interpretive challenge. And that challenge is, is one of two things is happening here. Is God promising to remove believers physically from this world before a time of testing, before a time of tribulation? Well, those that read this verse and think that way, they, they say, well, yeah, that's what this verse is saying, and that is a, 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 a position that is favored by those that, that believe in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. If I lost you on those words, I'm sorry. Hit me up afterwards. I'll break it down for you what I mean. But, but there are some that look at and use this as the verse that says, no, the church will be raptured before the tribulation comes. Look at Revelation 3, chapter 10. So the challenge is, is that what he's saying here? Or could it be a promise to protect the church from experiencing his wrath upon the world. That would be uh, the viewpoint from a a post-tribulation position. So which one is it? Well, a key to understanding this verse, I believe, say I believe, take it away for what it is, this is what I believe. I challenge you to study it, and you tell me what you believe. So give me the verses to back it up. But I believe a key to understanding this verse is found in John chapter 17. Turn with me in your Bibles there. John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, it contains the prayer of our Lord. In the section that Jesus is praying for his disciples, there's this one verse that says in verse number 15, Jesus is praying for his disciples and he says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them or that you protect them depending on which translation you have. Yours says either keep or protect. And so Jesus' prayer for his disciples is not that they would be removed from the world, but that they would be kept or protected. So here's, here's why that's significant. The Greek verb that's used for keep or protect in John uh, chapter 17 verse number 15 is the exact same Greek verb that's used in Revelation chapter 3 verse number 10. So it's my personal opinion that God has already demonstrated his power to protect his people. He protected the Israelites He protected them from the the devastation of the plagues that that were on the Egyptians. He didn't remove them from Egypt so that they didn't experience or live through the plagues. He protected them through it. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse number 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial 
when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Here's the truth that I hope that you'll remember. God doesn't promise to rescue his people from a trial. God promises to protect you through the trial. With that being said, let's go back to the letter in Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We'll pick up in verse number 11. I want you to notice that typically we would have this section of our Lord's criticism upon the church. But here he offers no criticism. Verse number 11, he says, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And so, because he offers no criticism for the believers, he gives them a command that is appropriate for their need. He tells them to to hold fast. Hold fast so that no one may seize your crown. I believe that in a very real sense, our church is, is like the church of Philadelphia. I say that in that God has set before us an open door of opportunity. Make no mistake, if God opens the door, then we we must be at work. We must get busy. But if God shuts the door of opportunity, then we, we should wait. But through it all, and above all, what we're called to do is to hold fast. Hold fast. Remain faithful to Him. Remain faithful to him as we seek to to find those opportunities. Not to be focused on the obstacles. You should realize that if we miss our opportunities, then we lose our reward, our crowns. We don't talk a lot about that in church. uh, On the rewards and the crowns that are available to to believers. And we probably should, should spend some more time unpacking that. I'm not going to do that this morning, but I do want to make a reference to 1 John chapter 2, verse number 28. You understand that what it means when we lose our reward or we lose our, our crown or that a crown is taken from us, it means that ultimately we'll be ashamed before the Father. In 1 John chapter 2, verse number 28, it says, And now, dear children, remain in fellowship with Christ, so that when he returns, you will be full of courage and not shrink back from him in shame. And so we should be diligent. We should hold fast. We must seek after the opportunities and the open doors. We must not get frustrated at the closed doors or the obstacles. We should just focus on what God has put before us and move in faith to be obedient to the calling that he's placed on our lives. Now, now look at the commitment that, that Jesus makes in verse number 12. He says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, this verse, verse number 12, is a picture of stability and security. 
those that would come from a Jewish background upon hearing this or reading this, they would have recognized immediately and they would have understood that it was just a generation earlier that the Romans had destroyed the earthly temple in Jerusalem. And now here, we're given the promise to be a part of God's eternal heavenly temple. Like That's a cool thing. Now this promise is probably especially encouraging to the people in Philadelphia because in that region, they have lived through many devastating earthquakes. And so they've seen the collapse of, of buildings, and now they're, they're given the promise to be part of an eternal structure. This is the first time that the city Jerusalem is mentioned in the book of Revelation. Once you know that every time that it is mentioned, it is portrayed as a city that is coming down out of heaven from God. Now here at its first mention, the temple is an essential part of the city. But if you read all the way through Revelation, you'll notice something. In fact, let me show you. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. So here in chapter 3, the temple is an essential part of the city. But in Revelation chapter 21, the same city emphatically has no temple. In chapter 21, verse number 22, it says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So what is going on? Chapter 3 says that we're pillars of God's temple. Chapter 21 says there's no temple. How do we understand this? What's the difference I think the difference is, is re- readily understood only if the meaning of temple is taken symbolically. Follow with me. In chapter 3, the presence of the temple with its pillars depicts the eternal security of believers. And then in chapter 21, the absence of a temple depicts the direct presence of God that is eternally present with believers. So they have no need to go to God in a temple when he's already present with them. So the promise of Jesus is Jesus is declaring, you are a permanent pillar. You will never be destroyed. You are eternally secure. And that's beautiful. And he, and he gives them that promise in the language that they would understand. Now, the, the believers in Philadelphia, I think, were in a similar situation uh, to which Paul addresses when he wrote uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. One more verse and I'm done. 1 Corinthians 16, verse number 9. Paul says, there is a wide open door for a great work here, although many oppose me. I think that was true for Philadelphia. I think that's true for Kingsland. A wide open door of opportunity. Now rest assured, with open doors, there will be both opportunities and obstacles. There always is. Now, unbelief focuses on the obstacle. Faith focuses on the opportunity. 
And, and since God holds the keys, then he's in control. He's in control of those open doors. He's in control of those closed doors. He's in control of the outcome. So what do we have to fear? Nobody can close the door if God's opened it. And nobody can open a door of opportunity if God has that door shut. So what do we have to fear? I'm left wondering, as we close, how many God-given opportunities have we missed because fear kept us focused on the obstacle instead of faith driving us to be obedient to the opportunity. Let me ask you something, church. What has fear kept you from what faith is calling you to? What has God called you to do with your life? Well, what, is, what is he moving you towards? And, and instead of giving all the reasons why you can't do it, all the reasons why it's difficult, it's hard, instead of focusing on all the obstacles, what will it take for you to place your eyes squarely on the opportunity that exists and in faith move forward to honor God with a life of obedience to do the very thing that he called you to do? I am so personally thankful and overwhelmed with the testimony from the Looney family today. Absolutely beautiful to see the passion and the desire to love other people, to love the people that, that are often rejected, looked down upon, outcast. And it's awesome that we have a connection, we have the ability to go to places like Haiti so that we can be a part of, of ministry there and the mission opportunity. That's great. But we don't have to go to Haiti to be a part about, of the people that are overlooked, that are outcast, that are rejected. All you got to do is walk out one of these doors and cross that street, and there they are. They are right here. And we, because we know the truth, because we know the hope that is found in Jesus Christ, because we are aware of that, why are we not more driven? Why are we not more concerned? Why are we not more focused and energized to take the gospel to every person in our community? What will it take to motivate us and ignite us to be intentional about sharing Jesus with the lost community? Apparently, it's going to take something greater than a flood. Because that didn't motivate us to. I know, I'm getting a little bit too personal now. What will it take? I love this place. I do. I love this place. I love the people that are here. So you're among it. If I didn't make eye contact with you, it's because I don't like you. Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm now I'm looking at every single person because some of you are going to take that seriously. Let me work my way through. Yeah, hi, see you. 
But do you ever get to the point where you're just kind of like tired of going through the motions? Tired of the same routine? Tired of just going to church? Tired of just attending another Bible study? What is it going to take for us to realize what we have and what we've been called to do? Man, that we would be so excited, so energized to, to talk with people, to share them the message of salvation. Man, what is it going to take? Like, I don't want to be a, a watered-down believer, right? I don't want to be a wishy-washy Christian. Like, I don't want to be someone who's blown about by the latest teaching, the most popular author, this person said that. Oh, isn't it so amazing? I don't really care what they say. I don't really care how amazing it is. If it's not supported by the Word of God, I have no interest in it. And I know some of you are mad. You've been mad at me because I spoke out against certain people or certain musicians or certain issues. But I want to tell you something. You might as well just get used to it because I'm not going to stop. I love this place. And we're in a mess we are in a mess. I'm not talking about the church, not just our community, but our state is a mess. So many resolutions being put before the House and the Senate in our own capital. Resolutions that will seek to redefine marriage. Resolutions that will seek to push the transgender agenda. All of that stuff is being pushed through right now. And like we need to wake up. We need to understand what God's word has to say about what's true, what's right, and we need to be firm and and, and hold fast and not give up. Now, the world's not going to like it, but I'm more concerned about what God likes than I am about what you like or what the world likes. And may that drive and motivate us all. Now, back to the last question. What has fear kept you from what faith is calling you Two, Father, in this time of invitation, I pray that you would be glorified in and through all of our lives. God, for the decisions that need to be made, the sins that should be confessed, uh, the decisions for salvation, for baptism, whatever it is, God, you know all things. And so, Father, help us to set aside the things that distract us. Help us to no longer look at the obstacles in life, but may we be focused on the opportunities that you have for us. God, be pleased, be blessed, be glorified during this time. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.